Welcome to the Springer Medicine Partner Podcast. This episode on genomic profiling in thyroid and lung cancer is brought to you by our colleagues at Springer Healthcare with support from Illumina. Next generation sequencing, which enables the simultaneous examination of hundreds and thousands of genes at one time across multiple samples, has revolutionized genomic research. It's now widely used in Europe to stratify cancer patients for treatment according to certain biomarker profiles. But how are oncologists and pathologists like you meant to apply this technology to their clinics? Well, we spoke with Professor Andrew Beggs from the University of Birmingham in the UK to find out. We hope that by the end of this podcast, you will feel more confident about genomic profiling as an option for your patient care. Hello, my name's Andrew Beggs, and I'm a professor of cancer genomics and surgery at the University of Birmingham and the University Hospitals Birmingham. I'm going to talk to you today about emerging biomarkers in thyroid cancer and non-small cell lung cancer. And I'm going to explore how we can improve the clinical integration of this next generation sequencing data and more widely explore biomarkers around this. So NGS is widely used across the world now, uh, no more so in European and North American markets, although it's been getting more and more usage in markets that would traditionally adopt it. And the reason it's become so important is because of its ability to stratify patients for targeted therapy. And both the FDA and the European Medicines Association both have biomarker panels uh, that they suggest patients could be stratified, specifically in lung and non-small cell lung cancer. There are a set of biomarkers that have been identified that may be of benefit for patients like this. And uh, I can think of one study that's already demonstrated that biomarker stratification may be of interest, and that's the National Lung Matrix study that match genotype agent therapy to a drug based on mutation. And although the amounts of data that came out were enormous, it's safe to say that genotype match therapy was a variable quality. And some therapies worked well and some didn't. But what was important is that we could identify via biomarkers which agent a patient could have. With thyroid cancer as well, there are multiple agents that can be given to patients with thyroid cancer that require targeting, and an NGS panel serves the way of doing this. And so I'm going to discuss the different types of panels that could be used in terms of technology and talk about sensitivity of different approaches. I'm also going to talk about how the best ways are to collect samples and also the advantages of using DNA versus RNA and how different models vary across the world from my experience. So talking about using NGS in diagnostic workflows, there are two main ways of doing this. There's tissue, so in other words, from a biopsy. And this is almost always a formalin fixed paraffin embedded biopsy. But sometimes, depending on the tissue you have access to, it can be a paraffin or fresh biopsy. And fresh biopsies have a lot of advantages in that the nucleic acids haven't degraded as much. However, they are more difficult to get because you need to process the tissue in such a way that the nucleic acids don't degrade. An example is in the 100,000 Genomes project where tissue was processed as fresh routinely and this required to have a specific infrastructure set up to obtain this. And this did this mainly by surgical resection specimen as having the tissue taken fresh during biopsy is a lot harder. Now there's also the option of liquid biopsy and liquid biopsy has a number of advantages in that it only requires a blood draw or a blood test. But the average liquid biopsy draw in patients having these markers is about 10 to 50 mils, 50 mils of blood, from which you get about 30 mils of plasma. 
the more plasma you have, the more likely you are to find a marker of choice because the higher the DNA load. But one of the problems with both lung cancer and with thyroid cancer is the tumors tend to be quite small and the disease burden tends to be quite low, except in the metastatic setting when it's quite high. And this means, especially in earlier disease, it can be difficult to get a sufficient CT DNA from patient samples. And this is a, a problem that can be overcome via various methods. So these techniques can also be complementary. You can use formalin fixed paraffin embedded biopsies to diagnose the patient. Uh, the samples are available, they're clearly marked, they're readily available. But then you can also proceed onto liquid biopsy for disease and treatment monitoring. And disease and treatment monitoring is really important, especially in the area of genotype match therapy, because we know that patients who undergo genotype match therapy can develop resistance early, especially with single agent targeted drugs. And we know from various studies that by doing a CTDNA panel, you can model how the resistance emerges and change treatment, but you can also surveil patients' treatment and understand when recurrence happens so you can target it early. So one of the obvious problems with all these samples, how we improve the quality of samples, and it's critical this starts from the sample collection process. One of the key messages that I've said is that fresh frozen is the best. However, fresh frozen is not really practical. One of the reasons being you have to keep something to freeze it with right next to the patient. So conventionally, people have used liquid nitrogen, although you can use isopropanol slush, which is a mixture of isopropanol and dry ice. However, the easiest thing would not be have these difficult freezing solutions. So another potential is um, tissue fixation solutions. And there are a number of commercial agents that exist in the market where a biopsy can be placed into a tissue fixation solution, which preserves its nucleic acids, usually at room temperature for 24 hours, but it can be up to 48, 72, sometimes even a week in the fridge or even longer in the freezer. And this means that it makes it a lot easier to take fresh samples. And obviously, as a scientist and as a diagnostician clinician, I would encourage the use of fresh material, but I know it's not always practical. So the next thing is to discuss whether formalin fixed biopsies are useful and what we can do to improve their quality. Well, one of the things with formalin fixed biopsies is a lot of it depends on how you preserve. When you formalin fix a tissue biopsy and paraffin embed it, the use of formalin formaldehyde causes cytosine deanimation. So in other words, it changes the genetic code of the tumour, DNA that's there, such that you can get spurious mutations within the tumour. There are ways of overcoming this bioinformatically, but the degree of this is directly proportional to how long the sample has been preserved, i.e. how long has it sat on the shelf, and what kind of fixation that you've used to treat the tumour with. For a long time, uh, these tumours... Uh, were fixed in non-buffered formalin and it, it was found as once again as part of the 100,000 Genomes Project and other genetic medicine projects that if you preserve a formalin biopsy in neutral buffered formalin the level of fragmentation the level of DNA artifact is a lot lower so we would recommend that. Also complete immersion of the tissue biopsy whether it's from a biopsy or resection specimen and early complete embedding helps. When you're collecting these tissues as well, how you cut them is important. And having a dedicated molecular pathology service that can cut these samples using sterile technique or clean technique, i.e. you change your blades on the microtome and wipe them down in between, is critical in order to get best nucleic acids. And most importantly is um, accurate quantification of these nucleic acids. Generally, the more people do, the better they will be at it. So having a trained and accurate core to do this will allow the maximum sample quality to be obtained. Now, the next thing to talk about is how some of the different nucleic acids you can get out of um, these samples impact on what you find. And there are advantages and disadvantages using both DNA and RNA. 
Now, you can get DNA and RNA out of formalin blocks without too much problem at all. And you can get RNA even out of liquid biopsies. However, it's not conventionally done at the moment. Formalin, para, formalin blocks, which we'll concentrate mostly on here, um, the sooner you get the material out of it, the higher quality it will be. But what you get out will be very low quality anyway because of the nature of the fixation process. But even with large panel sequencing and even with exome sequencing, we can quite easily get adequate nucleic acid out at a sufficient quality to do sequencing of both DNA and RNA. And the reason we know this now is but we can design a lot of these probes and targets so they work on short panels, short targets, short hybridization targets, which allows us to enrich for both DNA and RNA. So DNA is obviously good for mutation, for copy number, for structural variant. And RNA is good for things like gene fusions. Some commercial panels do try to call gene fusions off DNA. However, we know that DNA calling of gene fusions is problematic and has a, although can detect gene fusions, has a high false negative rate. We'd always recommend that you go on to collect RNA and try and do your fusions for RNA, as we know this method is much more sensitive at detecting the breakpoints between two genes, allowing very accurate fusion detection. And contrary to what's been thought up to now, RNA RNA extraction from, from formalin fixed blocks are actually is actually pretty good. We can get enough quality, sufficient RNA out of these types of blocks in order to test for fusions, to test for gene expression for other types of assays as well. And so the past where we thought it was impossible to get RNA out of these blocks, we've shown quite conclusively is not the case. Now, the advantage of DNA, as we talked about, is it allows us to do large panels. And generally, out of most samples, you can get sufficient DNA to do large panels. But one of the specific problems with non-small cell lung cancer, and to an extent with the fine needle aspirations or core biopsies you may get from thyroid cancer, is that the quantity of input DNA can be quite low. And your typical lung biopsy on a good day will have about 40 nanograms of DNA, as well as seeing roughly about the same in the thyroid biopsy. And if you go down to fine needle aspiration or endobronchial ultrasound sampling, the levels of DNA you get from these um, types of approaches can be quite low. Now, thankfully, these hybrid, the hybridization approaches we use in panel capture and also PCR capture approaches, both are of sufficient quality in order to capture these low input amounts of DNA. The main issue then comes when you take these samples that the tumor purity is quite low. And what's common to both methods is that tumor purity has to be reasonably good. In other words, when the paraffin sections looked at under a microscope when it's marked up with a H&E, we have to have enough tumour to be able to detect what we're looking for. Now, this can be a problem, once again, both with lung and with thyroid cancer, as this can lead to problems, struggles with understanding what you're seeing is actually there or not. So, for instance, if you've got a very low purity tumour sample, say a lung biopsy, where tumour only represents about 5 or 10% of the content, this can lead to um, falsely not seeing mutations that are actually present in the original specimen. And this is where liquid biopsy could be complementary. Quite often, liquid biopsy can detect mutations circulating in plasma that are not seen in the original biopsy. And this be, can be because of low purity in the original tumour sample. It can be very difficult to get high purity samples. And so this combined approach can be really useful in understanding what we do next. As well as that, with DNA large panels, one of the problems with both approaches, or less so with a DNA panel, PCR-based approaches drop out of the amplicons. And that means that we don't always cover the genes that we need to as part of this sequencing effort. And neither technology is particularly good at avoiding that, although hybridization approaches can slightly edge out on pulling out the DNA in a sample and sequencing it for you. 
However, once again, these samples can be tricky to work with. And so if you can maximize the purity of your sample, if you can maximize the quantity of your sample, and you do high quality input using the right nucleic acid extraction kits, this can make a big difference. Interestingly, what we see with ctDNA is quite different in that when we hybrid, when we pull out ctDNA from patients' plasma samples, we see that there's a reasonable amount of DNA within there. In, depending on the tumor, even in lung cancer, we can see 30 or 40 nanograms of totally extracted DNA. And this is more enough to do even a large panel test. And certainly in my laboratory, we've done large panel testing on lung cancer DNA samples and also on thyroid and found that they're suitable for large panel hybridization. But what's important is treatment of this plasma. And we spoke earlier about treating formalin fixed samples and how the best way to do it. With plasma, you must always really collect it into a commercially available ctDNA preservation tube. In the past, it's been suggested EDTA tubes where you do a double spin and they cut the plasma off within 20 minutes adequate. I would argue they're not. Uh, doing this method means that you get genomic DNA contamination, which can make your end results look very good from the point of view of DNA extraction, but in the end means that you've actually not got much tumor DNA at all. Using these preservation tubes, of which there are various different types available, allows you to keep the DNA at room temperature for anything between 7 to 21 days, which allows the samples to be sent through the post, which allows them to be processed by a central laboratory. So by using these tubes, most of which are CEIVD marked, you can ensure sample quality when it arrives. It's important as well just to validate your samples. You can run them on a DNA fragment and analyzer to allow you to understand whether there's any genomic DNA contamination, and that will allow you to maximize your high quality sample. Now, all of this is not much for much if you've not got the right funding behind this approach. And the UK has recently commissioned the Genomic Medicine Service, which allows patients to have as part of their standard of care funded access to clinical testing. And so one of the examples, this is the NHS Genomic Medicine Service in England. Uh, there's a test directory called the Cancer Test Directory, which you can find on the NHS England website. And through that, you can look through each tumor type and see which genes are authorized, as it were, for your tumor type of interest. So for instance, in non-small cell lung cancer, the test directory funds a multi-target NGS panel. We're looking for small variants, the critical ones that are important in lung cancer, things like EGFR mutations, ALK, BRAF, KRAS and MET, but also NTRAC fusions, which are licensed separately as a pan-cancer marker. And these are all markers that allow us to do a targeted therapy. Now, the way the NHS system works at the moment is it's not based on reimbursement. There's a central capitated fee where a block of money is given to a genomic laboratory hub. The Genomic Laboratory Hub is a centre based within a geographical region of the UK. There are seven of them in the UK at the moment, where samples are sent to and the sequencing analysis is performed as part of this budget, and the data is returned to the end user. It has to be requested through a genomic testing form, and there has to be consent and a record of discussion taken in order for it to happen. And then the report is returned to patients. This is very different from some of the models in Europe and the US, where it's a fee-for-service model. There are commercial providers and there are also academic hospital and university providers where samples are sent in and for a fee for a service, the panel hybridization is performed and data returned to the end user or patient. This means that it's easier to scale up as there is more money in the system. However, it has the disadvantage of lack of standardization. There are panels that are commercially available that are very different to other commercially available panels. And this means that the data you may well see may not be completely interchangeable with one or the other. It's unlikely that the, we will move away from the commercial market in these sectors, but if there could be a move towards standardization, it would help um, because integration alignment of these panel types is important. Although the test directory in the UK is a really good idea because it's standardized testing, it does limit choice somewhat. 
you'll only fund it to return the genes that are actually on the panel. So if you put a large panel into from the for one of your samples, the test directory, although it'll cover the funding for the, the gene variants it will use, it won't cover all of them. And that means that there's no incentive to report the other genes, the other variants that may be on the panel, but not actually be reported as part of the tumor of interest because there's no funding for it. And so this is a disadvantage of the NHS system. No method's perfect, and it's likely that as we get further and further into the landscape of genomic medicine, we will end up getting the right service model set up, both in the UK and both in Europe, and they're more likely to converge into each other. Now, I'd like to talk a bit more about integrating genomic profiling into patient care and management. Now, this is really important because it's very easy as a lab scientist and as a clinician who receives these reports just to send the sample through and get the data out, and then it stops. But most clinicians will need some kind of report being able to interpret. And we know that these panel sequencing facilities, wherever they are in the world, will do primary, secondary, and tertiary analysis. Primary analysis where the sequencing is done, secondary analysis where the variants are called in the sequencing data, and tertiary analysis where those variants are put into context. I, this is a pathogenic mutation, this is a hot spot, this is a drug target, this has been seen before. And one of the issues with large gene panels especially is that it's in, in tumours, for instance, that could be hypermutant, we see this in about 15 to 20% of lung cancer, that is tumours where there's a lot of somatic mutations because of their phenotype. Panel reports can have hundreds of mutations that come back. So it's important to tier them. In other words, assign them a priority of pathogenicity related to the tumour type. A lot of commercial software providers exist to provide this, and a lot of panel companies that make panels also provide software to allow to do this tiering. So really it's a question of what the end user wants. And in my experience, end users tend to be quite variable in their expertise. There are some, and it's generally oncologists, but it's quite often surgeons as well, who want a very simple report with the top genes of interest. So for instance, in lung cancer, just EGFR, ALK, BRAF, KRAS, and MET, or in thyroid cancer, they want RET and KRAS and HRAS and NRAS. And they don't want anything else. They don't want any other actual variants. But then you have the other expert user usually an oncologist, but sometimes a clinical scientist who wants all the variants. Now, part of this is going to be decision support software and decision support software, which should be integrated into the tertiary pipeline, will allow facilitation of knowing what clinical trials are available and also what um, drugs are available. And one of the issues of this is the market is moving so quickly. For instance, in the 100,000 Genomes Project, when we in Birmingham ran a very large tumour board, we found one of the issues were we would go to the clinical trials registry websites and we would find that a trial that would be suitable for this drug had either closed or it opened and closed or that it had not even run. And this made it difficult to triage patients to the appropriate therapies. But on the other hand, one of the more frustrating things when you run these large panels is that you can find, for instance, high tumor mutational burden, which will stratify the patient into immunotherapy. But in some legislatures like in the UK, immunotherapy is not always licensed in this context, especially in something like thyroid cancer. So there needs to be a better way of allowing decision support teams and precision oncology teams to receive information. And at the moment, there's no real central repository of tumor mutations matched to drugs. There are one or two and where some drugs occur, but these tend to be manufacturer dependent. And so I would argue we need to get towards some kind of registry of targetable alterations that we can integrate into these pipelines. One of the ways you can stay up to date though is by going to the commercially run oncology meetings where this data kind of data is presented at precision medicine congresses and there are these every year. But we do need better annotation of what drugs and what targets are available to precision medicine patients. 
Now, one of the other problems, and it's sometimes a good thing, is feedback of the patient to the results. Now, patients should always be fed back their results because it's important because they have a right to know. And although these two panels should just report somatic variants, they can also sometimes inadvertently report germline variants, which can cause problems. It's important to let them know what somatic variants there are, so they could be targeted by alterations, but also know that there may be no somatic variants they could be targeted by, because that can lead to disappointment if they realise that they thought they were having a panel which would show something and they didn't. However, one of the other problems that's recently surfaced with somatic panels is that we can detect patients with germline alterations in a somatic panel because of the variant allele frequencies. And we tend to see that more commonly with things like Lynch syndrome, uh, with BRCA, uh, with other inherited diseases that are rare, like pol mutation and pol D1. And that raises a problem. Initially, you're testing the patient for what's a somatic panel, but you can, initially, you can highlight a genetic variation that could actually be germline. And you don't have any evidence the germline's there, you just have a suggestion. And so you need to have close links with your genetics teams to be able to deal with that situation arising as it already has in our locality. Now, one of the other problems is that access to these tests, although freely available, as you've heard, can sometimes be limited by the fact that not everybody knows about them. So this is a particular problem in the UK where we have a district general and university teaching hospital model. And although in university teaching hospitals, generally access to these panels is reasonably straightforward, in a district general hospital model where they have to send the tumour out, it's really predicated on having an expert oncologist or the clinician there who can order these panel tests. And so we need to improve the education of clinicians. We need to make it part of really from medical school, but going all the way through training and all the way through into consultants and specialist training. And one of the ways you can do this is by continuing professional development, but there are also podcasts like this and other training materials you can use to understand the basis of genomic medicine and why it's important to your patient. The model I like to use is 40 or 50 years ago, we started to have automated blood analyzers where we could do full blood count, renal function, and that had to come in slowly. People were desperate to have the technology, but it had to be introduced slowly. It was limited to big centers and one had to understand how to interpret the results. And much is with genomic medicine. We're on the cusp of it going mainstream. Well, it really is already mainstream, but not everybody has access to it. Not everybody can necessarily interpret the results in a sensible way. So this will come through education. This will come through training. This will come from making these things more widely available and people having to learn what they mean and how to use them most effectively. And certainly I think we'll see a class more now of genomic medicine experts, whether whichever specialty they're in, oncologists mostly, but clinical geneticists, and I'm, I'm a surgeon, and I know quite a bit about molecular diagnostics, and I think it's important to surgeons because it allows us to stratify patients better. So I think joint medicine like this will impact on a clinician's practice massively over the next decade or so, and it's likely that we're going to look back on this podcast in 10 years' time and see that it's ubiquitous genomic medicine, and we wonder why we ever worried about it. But getting there could be the most difficult part. So... Just to summarise, on top of everything, it's important giant medicine. It's going to change patient diagnosis and management through panel sequencing initially. But with liquid biopsies also available, that's going to allow us to understand how treatment evolves. And these tests are, are going to become ubiquitous, no matter what type of health scenario you work in or health setting you work in. And understanding about how you can only get out high-quality data if you put a high-quality sample in is what we've discussed today as well as access to these bits of information, these tests and the downstream analysis 
and understanding their impact on patients, not just from the point of view of the somatic part, but also the germline part is important as being a well-rounded molecular diagnostic clinical practice. Thank you very much. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals for their ongoing medical education and entertainment. It should not replace the professional advice of a doctor or pharmacist and may not be used as a basis for diagnosis or any change to the prescribed treatment of disease. The views expressed by our moderators and guests are their opinions and do not represent the position of any third parties. The information given in the podcast is subject to change as the scientific field and clinical advances progress.